It's November 8th, and so we are one year out from the magnificent Russian cyber victory over the United States, known as the presidential election of last year. We are a hundred years and one day out from the Bolshevik Revolution, which is the last time that Russia exerted influence on this scale around the world. We're also about a year out from when I wrote the 20 lessons that became on tyranny. So what I thought I would do today is talk a little bit about what we now know a year later that reflects upon or expands upon or helps us to see the importance of lesson number 19, which is be a patriot. So what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is remind us of what we know about the Russian cyber war against the United States that led to the election of Mr. Trump as a way to help us keep the daily news in perspective because the daily news is abundant, it's partisan, it can be overwhelming, but there is a broader picture and I think the broader picture basically has three parts. The first part is understanding Mr. Trump as a kind of political fiction himself. Now, he's a man who produces a lot of political fiction, which can distract us from, I think, the more essential issue, which is that he himself is a political fiction. What do I mean by that? I mean, there is no such person, as far as we know anyway, as Donald Trump successful businessman. That is a political fiction which has been brought to us. The idea that we should elect Donald Trump president of the United States because he's a successful businessman is a fiction which was deliberately generated. How? In fact, again, as far as we know, our opinions might change if we had access to Mr. Trump's tax returns, which we don't. But as far as we know, on the basis of, of reporting, Mr. Trump is a spectacularly failed businessman, someone who owed billions of dollars to dozens of banks, who was uncreditworthy, who was a multiple bankrupt. Mr. Trump is someone who was then rescued by a series of licensing deals, which involved mysterious, or I should say, ever less mysterious Russian sources of cash. The infusions of Russian cash in the 90s and the 2000s allowed Mr. Trump to present himself as something which he was not, which is a successful businessman. He played the character of a successful businessman on television. So that's a double fiction. He never really was a successful businessman. And then on television, he played the character of a professional businessman. That fictional character was then delivered to us or brought to us with the help of the second thing that I want to talk about, which is the cyber war. So if you are a cyber warrior, your dream scenario and everyone else's nightmare scenario is the thing called cyber to physical. That is to say, you do something online, you do something digitally, and the thing that you do online, the thing that you do digitally, changes the real world. Just a few years ago, this was a scenario which only existed in manuals. This is now something that happens, unfortunately, rather abundantly in real life. It's happened to the Ukrainian electricity grid, it's happened to a factory in Germany, it's happened in a number of other places. The most dramatic example of cyber to physical is the delivery of the fictional character Donald Trump into the Oval Office. How does that work? Well, the first way that it works the first technique, which we can now see more clearly than we could a year ago, is what I would call divide and fool. That is, you use Facebook, you use Google, uh, you use Twitter to divide Americans, to make Americans angry at each other, and along the way you prefer one candidate to another candidate. Or, an important thing here, this started in the middle of 2015. 
the Russian divide and fall campaign started in the middle of 2015, which means that the Russians were not just preferring Mr. Trump um, to Mrs. Clinton, they were actually preferring Mr. Trump to the field of Republican candidates. In other words, they weren't just trying to choose the President of the United States, they were first trying to choose the Republican nominee. The second cyber tactic, or the second way that you use cyber war, is the mass of bots. Um, it is abundantly clear and is becoming ever clearer by the day that much of what we encounter when we're on Twitter, when we're on Facebook, when we're, when we're on other platforms is delivered to us um, by robots, very often um, from beyond the borders of the United States. This is incredibly important because when we sit in our homes in front of our computers, looking at our screens, reading what we think is our news, we assume that it's in, so, in some way it is ours, that it was produced by Americans, it, has, it may be Democrat or Republican, it may be right or left, it may have some kind of a spin, but we assume that what we see when we're tucked away in our homes in this country is in some sense American. But much of it is not. Um, it is basically at this point inconceivable if you use the internet in 2016 that you were not exposed to a piece of information or misinformation which was designed to manipulate you. Um, this is something that we have to get clear on because it has to do with our own habits and how we choose to, to look at the world. The third thing that happened, which was a bit clearer last year but which is worth remembering, is the timed hacks and drops. There were two of these which were extremely important. The first was the hack of the DNC, um, which, which then allowed the Russians to drop, um, to drop DN Democratic National Committee, con Committee emails right at the time of the Democratic National Convention, right at the time which was the worst possible time for the Democratic Party. The second example of this was the, the timed drop of uh, Mr. Podesta's emails half an hour after the Access Hollywood tape was released, in which Mr. Trump said things that I won't repeat about how women can and should be treated. 30 minutes after that tape was released, emails about the Democrats were then released. That's not a presidential campaign. That's what it's like to run a presidential campaign when a foreign intelligence service is at your back. So those were the three major techniques, the divide and fool, the mass army of robots, and then the timed email drops. And by way of those things, Russia was supporting uh, that a particular human being, fictional character in fact, Donald Trump become president of the United States. What does this mean? This is the third point that I wanna say. Um, what we have experienced, what we are experiencing, I think what we have to look at and see directly before we go any further, is a breach in the sovereignty of the United States of America. It is not a normal situation to have a foreign power be in the position to materially influence the outcome of a presidential election. Now, I'm happy to accept it's possible that he could have won without their help, although it's hard for me to see how since he wouldn't have existed without their help, but I admit it's theoretically possible. But in the real world that we are living in, he did in fact win with an awful lot of help. And this is a material breach in the sovereignty of the United States of America, which is something you ought to care about, regardless of what you think about Mr. Trump personally. Although again, I think it's hard to think about him as a person since the Mr. Trump that we've been delivered is actually a fictional character. In any event, how can we see this as a threat to American sovereignty? There's, there's one easy trick, which is to, to, to move from cyber and to ask for a moment about the people. The cyber war, the delivery of this fictional character is the main story. But let's look at the people who are clustering around. Who are the people who are actually involved in Mr. Trump's campaign? Who are the people who have followed him to the White House? It is astounding 
how many of them are more directly connected to the Russian Federation than to the United States. These are basically white guys with American accents, so we look at them and we see Americans, but they're basically people whose connections with Russia are much thicker and more important than their connections with the United States. Consider his foreign policy team. Mr. Papadopoulos, who has now uh, pled guilty to lying to the FBI about his connections with Russia. Uh, Mr. Page, who has now admitted to Congress that he tried to help Russia influence the Trump campaign and vice versa. Uh, Michael Flynn, who was paid by the Russian propaganda sender RT and later had to resign. This is, this is the foreign policy team. The present Secretary of State, Mr. Tillerson, we sometimes forget that he was given the order of friendship personally by, by Mr. Putin. If we move from there to the campaign staff, it's astonishing. Uh, Paul Manafort, who has now been indicted for conspiracy uh, against the United States. Paul Manafort is a serial rescuer of dictators. He is a man who took um, a multi-million dollar contract in the 2000s to soften up American de democracy for Russian influence. He is a man who understood, according to his own emails, understood his role as Trump's campaign manager as the possibility to get out from under personal financial de debts to a Russian oligarch. When he leaves and Mr. Bannon comes, we then have the replacement of, of, of one person with one kind of pro-Russian allegiances with someone who admires Russia ideologically. Mr. Bannon thinks that Russia is in favor of sovereignty, which is either maliciously wrong or simply naive. Russia is in, in favor of Russian sovereignty. It's not in favor of the sovereignty of the United States of America. And the, the, interestingly, the far-right, so-called alt-right people that Mr. That Mr. Bannon promoted um, on Breitbart, whether it's Richard Spencer or whether it's Matthew Heimbach, these are all people who regard Russia as the savior of the United States, as the savior of the white race and of the United States. So you move from one kind of pro-Russian attitude towards another kind of pro-Russian attitude. And of course, it doesn't stop there. It, it just keeps going. Um, our, our Commerce Secretary is somebody who served on, uh, who served on a bank in Cyprus, which is a major place where the Russians laundered money. Um, our Transportation Secretary is the wife of someone, the Senate Majority Leader, who doubted that there was a Russian campaign and thereby helped, helped that Russian campaign. This just goes on and on and on. Now, I mentioned the people just because the people are a clue. It is unusual to have a President of the United States come to power surrounded by people who are closer to a foreign power than they are to our own country. That's what's happened. But it's only a clue to the major development. The major development is, and by the way, everyone around the world sees this. We're just blind to it because we're on the inside. The major development is, is that our sovereignty has been violated. We are now a half-sovereign country, and we have to start the process of repair from there. Which leads me to the thought which I want to leave you with, um, which is that this, I think, is a trial for all American political parties. It's a trial for the Democrats because the Democrats lost. It's a trial for the Republicans because Republicans now have to ask themselves, is it right and proper that a foreign power chooses, favors, materially affects the selection of our candidate for president of the United States? And if our candidate wins, thanks to the help, or at least with the help of a foreign power, how do we react to that? The worrying thing is that partisanship can trump patriotism. That's the worrying thing. If we look back in 2016, there are signal moments where the enmity between Republicans and Democrats opened a flank which invited Russian attack. 
the fact that Republicans, for example, refused to confirm the Supreme Court nominee um, named by the Democratic president was noticed, let's, to put it mildly, that's an understatement, in Russia. The fact that, that Mr. Ryan, when confronted by a fellow Republican who thought that Trump was paid by Russia, said, let's keep that in the family, let's not talk about that, that was noticed, to put it mildly, in Russia. When the Senate Majority Leader in September in conversation with the heads of US intelligence agencies says, I don't believe that Russia is actually doing this. Again, to put it mildly, that was noticed by Russia. Partisanship, the idea that the other party is a bigger problem than foreign adversaries, that opens a huge flank. That makes American sovereignty vulnerable in a way that it hadn't been before. So Republicans now, I think, have, a year, have had a year of material, a year of time to do some soul searching. Because for all of us, regardless of our positions on other policy questions, it seems to me that it ought to be the fundamental issue, is the United States a sovereign country or not? Are we, in fact, living in a sovereign country? Are we doing the things that we need to do to defend our independence? That comes first. After that, we then disagree about policy. After that, we are, we are free to disagree about policy. But a year in, a year after the Russian cyber victory, it seems to me that we still have a lot of soul searching to do about the loss of American sovereignty. Now, is it all the Russians' fault? Why were we so vulnerable to this? That's a discussion that I've just began. There are a lot of reasons why the United States was vulnerable, and when I have a chance to do this kind of session again, that's what I'm gonna talk about next. The, thing, the ways that it's our fault, the ways that we opened ourselves up, the ways that we made ourselves susceptible and vulnerable, those are things that we can do something about, and when I have a moment, I'm gonna talk about that next time. Thanks a lot.